Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 107, Dr. Robert M. Bowman Jr. on Triadic New Testament Passages, Part 1. Dr. Robert M. Bowman Jr. is a well-known evangelical Christian apologist. He has earned an M.A. in Biblical Studies and Theology from Fuller and a Ph.D. in Biblical Studies at South African Theological Seminary. He has taught graduate courses in Apologetics, Biblical Studies, and Religion at Luther Rice University and Biola University. He has also worked with the Christian Research Institute, the Atlanta Christian Apologetics Project, and Watchman Fellowship in Alabama. Dr. Bowman has spoken at over a hundred churches and at some three dozen conferences and debates. Since 2008, he has served as Executive Director of the Institute for Religious Research, which you can find online at irr.org. Dr. Bowman also blogs at religiousresearcher.org. He's published about 60 articles and 13 books on apologetics, religion, and biblical theology. His books include An Unchanging Faith in a Changing World, 1997, Faith Has Its Reasons, 2nd edition in 2006, Putting Jesus in His Place, The Case for the Deity of Christ, co-authored with Ed Komaszewski, 2007, and What Mormons Believe, 2012. But he's here today to talk with us about his 2013 article entitled, Triadic New Testament Passages and the Doctrine of the Trinity. Dr. Bowman, welcome to the Trinity's Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Dr. Bowman, in your article, you list over 80 passages in which Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are mentioned in close connection. In your view, how are such passages relevant to Trinitarian theology? What I try to explain in the uh, opening couple pages of the article is that the doctrine of the Trinity isn't based primarily on individual proof texts that happen to refer to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that my study of these passages is not suggesting that any one of these by itself proves the doctrine to be correct, but rather the study of these passages presupposes that we've already seen in the Bible that there is one God and that the New Testament teaches that the Son, Jesus Christ, is God and that the Holy Spirit is a divine person as well, who is God. And so once you have those ideas in place, though, from different passages of the Bible, you do have, as it were, the makings of the doctrine of the Trinity. But there is a kind of suspicion that many people have that what Orthodox Christians have done is to take some passages here, some passages over there, another group of passages over another place, and sort of force them together into a pattern that is not itself found in the Bible. So what I try to do in this article is to show that that's not the case, that in fact there is a triadic or incipient Trinitarian structure in the theology, in the teaching of the New Testament. And so these passages are presented to demonstrate that a triadic or incipiently Trinitarian way of talking about the divine that we see throughout the New Testament. So I want people to understand that I don't think that uh, quoting Matthew 28:19, for example, ends the discussion as if that's enough by itself to prove that the doctrine of the Trinity is true. No, I'm looking at Matthew 28:19 in the light of other doctrinal information, doctrinal teaching that we already have in the Bible. 
and arguing that that verse, along with a number of other passages, reflects a way of thinking about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that does point in the same direction of the doctrine of the Trinity. So, Dr. Bowman, if I understand you, you're conceding that these triadic passages themselves logically imply the Trinity, but they are best explained by, by Trinitarian theory? Is that right? Well, what I'm saying is that these passages all support some aspect of the doctrine of the Trinity, and in particular, they all uh, support the Trinitarian claim that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in some kind of coordinated relationship amongst themselves that sets them apart from anyone or anything else. And so they're not in the category of angels, they're not in the category of other beings, that there's some kind of a um, distinct setting apart and exalted recognition of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so I think we, we see that. I think we see in many of these passages a confirmation of what I argue primarily from other places in the New Testament, that the Holy Spirit is a divine person distinct from the Father and the Son, not simply the, the power of God or another name for the Father. So there are different elements of the doctrine of the Trinity that are corroborated or supported from these passages. But there is no verse in the Bible that says that there is one God existing eternally in three persons named the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no use of the word Trinity, and every decent theologian understands that. But what I am arguing is that these passages support the doctrine of the Trinity, first of all, in some very specific ways, as I said, showing us that the Holy Spirit is a divine person, showing us that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are coordinated in some uh, religiously significant fashion, and very often as the object uh, of devotion religious devotion of, of some sort, and that there is a triadic structure to the way the New Testament uh, talks about the divine. So those are all ways in which these passages support the doctrine of the Trinity, but no one verse of these triadic passages proves everything about the doctrine of the Trinity. So, for example, uh, there is no way to prove, I would argue, from Matthew twenty-eight nineteen that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one God. The text doesn't say that. I don't think you can prove it. And even some Trinitarian theologians have attempted to prove it by pointing to the singular form of the word name in Matthew 28, 19. I don't think that's a legitimate proof. So I don't try to prove everything about the doctrine of the Trinity from Matthew 28, 19. But I do think it points in the direction of the doctrine of the Trinity in the context of the rest of what the New Testament says. And I think it does exclude certain non-Trinitarian theologies more than it does others. So, for example, I think if you don't have monotheism as a context, you could accept Matthew 28, 19 statement at face value from a Mormon perspective, but not a Jehovah's Witness perspective. I think that it's, it's simply incompatible with the Watchtower's doctrine. Whereas a Mormon, not recognizing that there's only one God uh, who is the object of religious devotion, could look at Matthew 28, 19, and simply looking at the words of the text, what they're saying would fit. But I don't think it fits other things in the New Testament. Dr. Bowman, a couple of times you describe in this article some of the passages as, quote, implicitly Trinitarian. Right. And when I see the word Trinitarian or even the word Trinity, it seems to me that it's ambiguous because... In the most proper sense, to talk about the Trinity is to talk about a tripersonal God with equally divine persons. 
But then there's another sense where people just use Trinity as a plural referring expression, just refers to Father, Son, and Spirit without prejudice as to exactly how they're related. So then you see even Unitarians talking about the Trinity in this second sense. For instance, the famous Unitarian Samuel Clark has a book called The Scripture Doctrine of the Trinity, but he doesn't believe in a triune God, but he believes in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What I hear you saying is that there is a trinity here, at least in the second sense, that it's mentioning the three of those, but that it's not at all obvious that it, if you take them in isolation, it's not obvious that it, it's mentioning a tripersonal God. But you think that specifically it's the deity of the three of them and the uh, distinctness of them as divine from other things. It's, it's that that you, th- that you think is most relevant. That part of Trinitarian theology is most relevant to these passages. That'd probably be a fair statement. In other words, I'm, I'm arguing that these passages point in the direction of the doctrine of the Trinity in the context of the rest of the New Testament's teaching about the nature of God and about these three persons, that they support a Trinitarian way of, of thinking about God. But I'm uh, recognizing that uh, take one of these verses out of context, uh, the words themselves uh, taken out of that context won't affirm or say everything that is involved in the doctrine of the Trinity. But, you know, every theology that claims to be grounded in the Bible, every doctrine that's an alternative to the doctrine of the Trinity, at best is going to be able to claim, assuming that their interpretations are correct, they're still only going to be able to claim, if they're being really honest with themselves, that that's implicitly or, you know, in an anticipatory way pointing to their doctrine. There's no spelling out of the doctrine of Unitarianism. There's no spelling out of a Mormon concept of deity. There's no explicit spelling out of the uh, uh, Watchtower's doctrine either, and certainly no uh, spelling out of the Oneness Pentecostal uh, view of, of the divine. So all of these theologies say things in ways that are more systematized, more theologically formal in their expression than what you find in the New Testament. The question then is which of these is the one that really takes best account of all that the New Testament says. And again, all I'm trying to argue from these 80-plus triadic passages is that when Orthodox Christians say, you know, the, the Son, Jesus Christ, is God, the Holy Spirit is God, the Father is, of course, God, and that this uh, is what we refer to as the doctrine of the Trinity, I'm mainly responding to the objection, well, you're pulling passages from the New Testament willy-nilly and shoehorning them into a doctrine, but there's no evidence in the New Testament that we're supposed to bring the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together in this way. And I'm arguing, oh, yes, there is. There's plenty of evidence. Everyone has to do the work of showing that their theology is supported in the text. But I'm arguing that there is a threefoldness, there is a triadic structure in New Testament revelation, and that well supports the doctrine of the Trinity. And I think it does so much more so than it does any of the other theologies, although, as I said, taking any of these verses out of the context of, of the rest of what the Bible says, you might be able to fit some of these in, for example, into a Mormon th- system of three gods. But that's not going to work with New Testament theology as a whole. 
And in some of these places, I think the evidence is, is even against that within the immediate context. So it's just a matter of looking at each of these texts and saying, what is it that these verses actually say? What I try to do in the article is not to go beyond what the texts say in terms of drawing legitimate inferences or implications from what the passages actually say. So I don't look at one of these verses and say, look, I've, I've now, you know, we've now seen here an explicit formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity. No, they don't do that. But what they do say is worth noting. Dr. Wilbin, let's take a look at some of these passages, and let's start with the one that you mentioned already. It's the famous end of the first gospel, the gospel according to Matthew, and it says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, as you mentioned, countless readers have observed that the word name here is singular. In your view, does the writer here expect us to supply a name like the Trinity or Yahweh or, as some Pentecostals have suggested, the name Jesus? Uh, No, I don't think so. I think the term name is being used distributively. I think that would be the correct uh, way of using that word here. In other words, uh, the, the word name appears only once, but it applies to the terms Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three distinct names. So, no, I don't think we're supposed to supply a name that's not mentioned in the text. I think the word name there is used to refer to each of the three names that we see in the text. You see it as an idiom, which is kind of a shorthand where it's equivalent to saying baptized in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit? Yes, that is exactly correct. I wonder if it even requires a distributive reading like that. I mean, for instance... You might think of somebody, um, I've given this example before, imagine that there's a a sheriff in an old Western movie, and he is deputizing people in the name of the president and the governor and the Constitution. And so it's just kind of what the basis of his authority or the governing authorities that he's uh, introducing them into to be parts of. But it isn't even necessarily equivalent of the name of the president, the name of the governor, and the name of the constitution. If the name is just the thing, could it just be these are the things into which we're baptizing without suggesting that there's a proper name to each one? I don't think so, because first of all, that kind of usage I don't see anywhere in the Old or New Testaments. 
I don't think that's a uh, typical or conventional uh, Jewish way of uh, speaking in religious language. That's one reason I would I would uh, disagree with that. The second thing is that yes, if you had a text, if you had somebody saying, you know, your your example, the sheriff saying, you know, I, I'm arresting you in the name of the governor of the great state of Texas, uh, the president of the United States, and the Constitution, or something like that. That would be kind of odd to hear somebody say that, but I suppose it'd be possible. That doesn't work unless you can imagine somebody saying, I arrest you in the name of the Constitution. Uh, and I don't ever hear people say that. I have heard people say, you know, stop in the name of the law, for example. And that might be a, a more useful illustration for your own purposes because that is an idiom that we're familiar with in English. I don't think that's an idiom or that there's equivalent examples of that in the Bible. But that would work only because you could see somebody saying that individually, uh, you know, in that particular expression, uh, in the name of the law or the name of whatever the abstract concept or object is. But that doesn't fit Matthew 28, 19. And as I've explained elsewhere, that's a legitimate uh, possible explanation if you're talking about the use of the word name where the, the object, uh, you know, the, the, the thing to which the word name refers is described using an obvious, uh, well-known, abstract noun or other kind of impersonal term such as law. That's not the case here. Holy Spirit uses the noun spirit, and spirits in biblical thought are generally personal entities or beings of some kind. They're persons. They're not uh, forces. They're not uh, stuff. They're not things. It's a very familiar usage, at least, to, when you talk about a spirit, that it's referring to a person. So it would be very confusing to say, baptize in the name of the Holy Spirit, when spirit can, and very often, if not usually, refers to a person of some kind, and then say, well, but the Holy Spirit's not a person. Furthermore, the fact that you've got this coordination of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the text, along with the point I just made about the term, uh, the word spirit, or pneuma in Greek, these elements, these points that I'm making, converge on the conclusion that we should view the Holy Spirit in this passage as a person, just as we view the Father and the Son. So it's not simply a matter of, uh, you know, logically, uh, it can only be this. Logically, uh, you cannot use the word name to refer to a non-person. No, I'm not saying that. But if you look at the text uh, and the various elements and the way they come together in this verse, in this statement, I think the, the strongest uh, and most plausible understanding of it is that the Holy Spirit is a divine person alongside the Father and the Son. Dr. Bowman, when you look at the usage of the term Father or the Father or the Heavenly Father, terms like that in the New Testament, 
I think all good interpreters take the view that the Father doesn't refer to one of the persons within God as such, but it, it refers to the, the one God. And so in light of that, can't you just read this as equivalent to meaning that Christians are baptized into the one God and his Son and his Spirit? Well, there's a couple of issues here. One is, what is it that we're claiming that this passage proves? And what I've argued is that this passage at least proves in a, in a typical exegetical sense of this is by far the best explanation of the text. It proves that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three divine persons in some sense. In what sense we would have to work out, you know, perhaps in ways that go beyond the immediate uh, statement itself. But that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three divine persons and not two persons and a force or uh, two persons and another name for the first person or something like that, I think we can make a very strong case for that. But the Unitarian's going to grant that all three of these can be divine in some sense of divine, right? Not, not some one sense, but in some sense or other, because the first one is God himself. The second one is the son of that God, so in that sense he's divine. And then the third is either a God himself again or a power of God. But it's a power of God, right? So it's a divine power. Well, that's right, and that's why I said divine persons and not just divine. Everybody agrees that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all divine in some way. All of the major theologies that we could talk about, Unitarianism even, and, uh, and Jehovah's Witness, and Mormon, and Oneness Pentecostal, they all agree, as of course does the Doctrine of the Trinity, that all three of these terms refer to someone or something that's divine. My point is a little bit more specific than that. I think we can show from this passage that the Holy Spirit is not just divine, but is a divine person, and a divine person that is other than or distinct from the Father and the Son. That's the part I'm asking about. I don't, I don't quite see how you think this implies or supports the view that the Spirit is a, a person distinct from, um, from God, that is, from the Father. Again, there's two views that we have. We could discuss both of these. One is that the Holy Spirit is simply another name for the Father, another name for God, the Father. And the second view is that the Holy Spirit is a force that emanates from God the Father. If we dispense with that second one for the time being and go with the first one, I don't think it makes much sense of the text as it stands to understand the third name or, or, or reference to be a restatement of the first. In other words, it doesn't really make sense to understand this verse to mean in the name of God, his son, and God. <laughs> that would be a weird kind of redundancy. I agree. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I, th that's why I would say the Holy Spirit here is clearly someone distinct from the Father. How that distinction works, uh, how it is to be understood and explicated in, in any kind of detailed way, the text doesn't go into all that. But the Holy Spirit's not just another name for the Father. The Holy Spirit is someone distinct from the Father in some way, and of course also someone distinct from the Son. So that excludes at least some alternative theories, not necessarily all of them, but some alternative theories to the doctrine of the Trinity. So it seems like there have to be three somethings. It would be strange to reiterate one of the three things, say one of the three things twice, but you're saying these three somethings must be divine persons. I don't quite see why the three somethings can't again be God, the Son of God, and let's say the power of God. Well, then that was the second option that I mentioned as an alternative to the Trinitarian understanding. 
And given that the Father is a divine person, and that the Son is a divine person, and that spirit is a noun commonly used in biblical language for persons of whatever kind, and so could be, and very likely would be, you know, certainly it would be a plausible understanding that spirit here would also refer to a person. Having seen that the Father and the Son already are clearly divine persons and not, you know, just names for different each other or one's a force or something, then the reasonable inference is that the Holy Spirit is also a divine person, just as is the Father and the Son. Is it logically possible to come up with an alternative way of thinking about it that, that seems to fit? I'm not going to argue that it's illogical, but it's, it's not plausible to take Father and Son to refer to two distinct persons, and then in this context to take Holy Spirit to refer to a non-person, to a force, or, or something of that nature. So it's the context of the, the inclusion of the third with the first two, you think, best yes. fits with them having an equal status. Yes, and the fact that this is in the context of an act of religious devotion, namely baptism, in which the disciple is undergoing a ritual of religious devotion and allegiance to, uh, uh, I don't know if you want to use the term worship, at least loosely, but some kind of act of religious commitment to the Father and the Son. In that context, the additional reference to the Holy Spirit here, in that context of being involved as a, one of the objects, uh, if you want to put it that way, of the religious act of, of baptism supports the fact that, that the conclusion that the Holy Spirit is understood here as a divine person, as, as a divine object of devotion, of religious commitment on the part of the new disciple. So there's a lot that goes into this conclusion. It's not simply that the word name appears in the text. Mm-hmm but is certainly one of the elements that contributes to this conclusion. And I think that the, the evidence is pretty overwhelming that this is the way, and granted there were differences of opinion on a number of, of aspects of the, the whole issue of the Trinity in the early church, but this is one of the areas where there doesn't seem to have been a lot of debate, that there weren't, there weren't a lot of people running around saying that the Holy Spirit is a divine force. That seems to be predominantly a modern reinterpretation of the New Testament teaching on the Spirit. And this is one of many places where I think we see the Holy Spirit is a divine person. And, and again, I wouldn't make this my primary proof text for that. I don't sure. think that way. But, and I, I know you're familiar with, uh, at least somewhat familiar with my arguments with regards to the teaching of John 14 to 16 in the book of Acts, of the Holy Spirit being a divine person in those contexts, mm-hmm. where I think it's elucidated in a much more uh, thorough fashion. But we see... I think some support for it, uh, confirmation of it here in Matthew 28, 19. Yes. Now that I'm discussing this with you, I see how 
I think the point that you're making kind of presupposes some of your other thinking about the New Testament. Um, your book, Putting Jesus in His Place, you have what you call the hands argument, where you say in the whole New Testament it shows that Jesus is God because He shares the honors, attributes, names, deeds, and seat of God. So that's the acronym right. hands. Right. And because you have that in the background, then it's obvious you're saying that Jesus is divine in the same sense that the Father is, or equally divine or a divine person in the same sense that the Father is. And so because of that, when you see the Father and Son, okay, well, those two have equal status in your view. And then what's this third one doing here? If you take a view where the Son isn't divine in quite the same sense as the Father, then you're not going to maybe see the force of the argument. Yes, at the beginning of the article that we're discussing here, Triadic New Testament Passages and the Doctrine of the Trinity, I state very candidly that I'm not going to be arguing for the deity of Christ uh, in the Orthodox understanding of that mm -hmm. in that particular article. Uh, I'm really presupposing that's in place. And so, yes, I, I'm not embarrassed to, to say I, I do look at Matthew 28:19 with that background in mind. I think this is a two-way, you know, bi-directional matter. I think Matthew 28, 19 contributes to the case in the other direction, but it, it, it's not a proof text, doesn't tell us that the Son is God. But in the context, in fact, as I explain in, in that book, Putting Jesus in His Place, we see all five of those aspects of Christ's deity right here in this passage of Matthew 28, 16 to 20. We see His... Uh, divine position. We see his divine attributes, uh, particularly his omnipresence, where he says, I am with you, that is, all disciples everywhere, always till the end of the age. And compare that, for example, also with Matthew 18, 20. And so uh, we could go through it all. I would argue that there's a rich context, not just far afield, but right here in Matthew 28, 16 to 20, the final pericope of the gospel that shows that Jesus Christ is fully God, that he has all of the, fits all the criteria uh, for being God. And so, yes, I certainly understand the title, the Son, in that context of Matthew 28, 19, to be understood as referring to a person who is himself fully divine. Well, you might think, though, that having all authority given to him rules out his being God, because God just has authority insofar as he's God, right? But if uh, Jesus is I, given authority, why doesn't that, <laughs> yeah, why doesn't that I, cut I, against... I would if I wasn't aware of the fact that Jesus, and this isn't specified in, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh -huh. but uh, that Jesus uh, had humbled himself to become a human being in the first place. In fact, I would say, actually, that is at least... There is some indications of that in Matthew. For example, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, Matthew 20, 28, that there is some indications of this. But the clearest expression of it would be found, for example, in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, where the divine person of the Son of Christ humbled himself to become a human being. And in that humiliation, in that humbling uh, took a, a place in which he was dependent on the Father exalting him after his death and, and in his uh, resurrection and ascension to have that authority. And so I see that a statement, uh, all authority has been given to me, as reflecting that incarnational context. Dr. Bowman, we've been talking about this passage at the end of the Gospel according to Matthew, 
where it mentions Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And insofar as you view the Father and Son as equally divine persons, then putting the Holy Spirit in there might suggest that he is a third equally divine person with the same status as the first two. You do mention in your article a couple of passages in the letters of Paul where you have the Father and Son mentioned, but then angels in the place of the Holy Spirit. So let's just take a listen to those. The first one is 1 Timothy 5.21, and the second one is... 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-8 In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I warn you to keep these instructions without prejudice, doing nothing on the basis of partiality. For it is indeed just of God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to the afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So in these passages, we wouldn't infer that the angels are of the same status. I mean, how do you deal with this sort of objection to your exegesis? Well, the first thing I would point out, and I actually didn't mention this in discussing 1 Timothy 5.21 and similar passages in the article, but the first thing I'd mention is that the elect angels, though they are not God, are certainly persons. Uh, They're personal beings or entities of some kind. And so here again, we see this pattern of, you know, one person, a second person, and then in this case, not a third person, but a group of persons being mentioned. And the reasonable understanding, and of course, we understand this from other places in the, in the Bible without any difficulty, is that these elect angels are in fact persons, not forces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, he's calling upon them as witnesses in a way. He's calling upon them as witnesses. And in fact, of course, that language in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels is sort of almost courtroom language of of calling upon them as, as witnesses to what he's about to say. So I think that they are persons in this context uh, is certainly obvious enough. And, uh, and I would appeal to that as further confirmation of my observation with regards to the Holy Spirit in Matthew 28, 19. I've emphasized over and over that I don't think that merely the coordination of the three names in any particular context in and of itself proves that the three have equal status or that each person is God in the same sense or in the same, uh, with the same uh, authority or, or nature. But you have to look at the statements in context. I am not aware of any New Testament passage that identifies a specific angel as God or assigns uniquely divine functions or honors to angels. In fact, we are told not to worship angels in in the book of Revelation, and and there's nothing to the contrary anywhere else in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. We've got at most, by my count, at most eight texts in which angels happen to be mentioned in some fashion alongside the Father and the Son. This shows that angels are a significant part of you know, biblical thought, New Testament thought, but we don't see the same kind of pervasive triadic pattern with angels that we do with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And of course, the fact that these are all plural references to angels is another difficulty with trying to draw a comparison because we don't have, for example, the Father, the Son, and Michael, <laughs> or God, Christ, Jesus, and Gabriel. Mm-hmm. We don't have any state any statements like that. 
but rather what we have are these references to the Father and the Son or God and Christ and the angels. And so I would argue that those are some important differences that should be caution against taking these passages as somehow negating any indication of uh, what I call an implicit Trinitarianism in these other references to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm glad you mentioned that phrase again, implicit Trinitarianism, because this is something that keeps coming up over and over in our conversation. There's a big difference between saying that a passage logically implies something, which means that if the passage is saying something true, then this other thing that's implied must also be true. That's different than saying that what the passage says and what it doesn't say is best explained by this theology or, or theological theory. And you're really saying that things like Matthew 28 and these other passages, many of which we haven't got into yet, that they're best explained by Orthodox, creedal, Trinitarian theology. It's not that they imply, certainly not by themselves, they don't imply Trinitarian theology, but they're most naturally understood in that context. Well, they imply certain aspects of Trinitarian thought, but you can't draw a direct inference from Matthew 28, 19 to the doctrine of the Trinity per se. So if we are going to, uh, you know, use the word implicit here, it's not in saying that logically Matthew 28, 19 sort of deductively implies or leads, you know, by deductive reasoning to the doctrine of the Trinity, but rather it implies certain aspects of the doctrine of the Trinity to be true and undermines its logically incompatible with alter, some alternative theologies. But the text as, as it stands does not prove every aspect of the doctrine of the Trinity. Sure. But even the point that the Holy Spirit is a person, I mean, it's just, it's logically consistent to invoke God and Jesus and a force, right? There's a consistency in just mentioning invoking the three of them together. Like we see in the passage we just discussed, 1 Timothy 5, he invokes God, Jesus, and the elect angels. And you said, well, they're persons. Yeah, but they're not a person. I mean... Well, obviously, because yeah. they're a plural object. Yeah. yeah. You can mention two persons together with anything whatsoever, whether it's a person or not, right? Well, look, let's use that example because we, 1 Timothy 5.21, God, Christ Jesus, and the elect angels are called as witnesses. Mm-hmm. Now, the word witness does not have to be used with reference to a person or a group of persons. If it's used literally, it's got to be persons. But yeah, you could have well, evidence. You could call your evidence a witness if it's a blood stain or something. In the Old Testament, Joshua had a group of stones left by the river as witness mm-hmm. <laughs> or witnesses to what had happened that day. Uh, scripture is said to uh, bear testimony or, or be a witness. Miracles are said to be witnesses. Right. So you can use the term witness or witnesses or testimony with regard to non-personal objects yes. in biblical language. Mm-hmm. However, if you have a text that says, I call as witnesses person A, person B, and then C, where C is a term that is normally or at least often used with reference to persons, mm-hmm. like angels, <laughs> then it is straining uh, to argue that the C is not personal. Mm-hmm. So I, I would, you know, and there I would say it's not simply a matter of kind of a, a logic chopping deductive argument. 
but just good common sense exegesis or reading of a text that when you have a statement like that, you would not try to force it to support an interpretation that is quite frankly an, an obvious stretch. So yes, uh, you could make up some kind of a plausible sounding, it wouldn't be plausible, but it might sound plausible interpretation. Well, angels means messengers, and you could use messenger to refer to a, a non-personal conveyance of information. So the, the, the elect, the chosen messengers might be, elect angels might be the chosen means of communication. <laughs> yeah, well, that would be a stretch. Uh, is it logically possible? I suppose. Is it a reasonable interpretation of the text not on your life? So then if you go to a text like Matthew 28, 19, baptizing them, disciples, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the reasonable interpretation is that the Holy Spirit is some kind of a person who is joined with the Father and the Son as the object of the religious act of being baptized. Does that prove that the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity? No, not, not quite, but it certainly... I think, undermines, as I've mentioned, two popular alternative views. One is that the Holy Spirit's another name for the Father. I think that's out. The other is that the Holy Spirit is some kind of impersonal effluence or force that emanates from the Father. I think that's out. You then have to uh, look at your other options. The Holy Spirit is a divine entity or being that is subordinate to and lesser than God the Father. Or uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three gods in a triumvirate, as in Mormonism. Or the doctrine of the Trinity. But those other two interpretations, I think, can be reasonably excluded, even though they're not logically impossible, but they're not very good interpretations. Dr. Bowman, thanks for talking with us. My pleasure. This week's thinking music was Stars Collide, instrumental version by Josh Woodward. I've got the link where you can download that on the blog post for this episode, and you can also visit joshwoodward.com to hear more of his music. I'd like to give a special thanks to Lisa in California for her donation via PayPal. Thank you, Lisa. appreciate it. If you'd like to give a one-time donation through PayPal or set up a small recurring monthly donation, you can do that through the orange buttons on any blog post at trinities.org. Also much appreciated is your help to get the word out about the Trinities podcast. If you're an iTunes user, would you consider leaving a rating and a written review at iTunes? And if you're not an iTunes user, would you consider sharing this episode on social media, such as Facebook, Twitter, or Pinterest? Next week, we'll discuss several more triadic passages with Dr. Bowen. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.